Hey, listener, this is Jimmy Pardo from the award-winning podcast, Never Not Funny. You are listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Turn up! Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, Ted Ottaviano of 80 synth band Book of Love discusses that band's possible full-time reunion, if all goes well at their upcoming gig in Houston. You know, those guys didn't consider themselves musicians, but more like artists who painted with music. Lindsay Buckingham was his masculine calling himself a colorist as opposed to musician, and I always thought that that was pretty much said it. But we always kind of knew, we need a little blue here, we need a little dark yeah. blue there. We'll hear more from Ted in just a bit. Michelle Bachman may have a new career as a comedy writer. Comedian Tabari McCoy has an exciting special announcement. But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. Carnival Cruise Lines will spend more than $300 million to upgrade its ships to prevent a repeat of what happened on the Carnival Triumph. The fleet-wide overhaul at the world's largest cruise operator will include a significant enhancement of emergency power capabilities on all 24 Carnival vessels, as well as changes that will add more redundancy to operating systems and pop-up tents and K-rations to every cabin. The House GOP's campaign committee said Wednesday it will not be helping former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford in his comeback bid for Congress. The decision to withhold financial support from Sanford comes a day after the revelation that Jenny Sanford, the former governor's ex-wife, has accused him of trespassing at her home in violation of their divorce settlement. An anonymous source said that the campaign committee would have continued to support Sanford had he been carrying a gun at the time. A judge on Wednesday finalized a $700,000 settlement between McDonald's Corporation and members of Michigan's Muslim community over claims a suburban Detroit restaurant falsely advertised its food is prepared according to Islamic law. The judge was not swayed by McDonald's argument that, well, it's not really meat. Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam said Tuesday the federal government has launched a criminal investigation into rebates offered by the truck stop chain owned by his family, including his brother, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam. Agents from the FBI and Internal Revenue Service raided the pilot flying J headquarters in Knoxville on Monday, said jaded Cleveland Browns fans everywhere. Yeah, that's about right. <clears throat> The months since the deadly Connecticut shooting have seen dozens of gun buyback events across the country, with officials getting thousands of unwanted firearms off the street and sending them off to their destruction. GOP lawmakers in Arizona, however, have crafted a bill that would require local agencies to sell the firearms to gun dealers. In other news, Arizona GOP leaders want spent nuclear fuel rods to be stored under city parks and playgrounds. Florida Senator Marco Rubio spent about 15 minutes with conservative radio host Lars Larson on Thursday defending a sweeping immigration bill he and seven of his colleagues unveiled just hours before. When Rubio was done, Larson's first three callers complained that the bill would reward people who broke the law to be here, then asked if the senator would cut their grass for $5 cash. And that's been Fake News with me. Representative Michelle Bachman, ironically, is on the House Intelligence Committee. And to prove what an oxymoron that is, uh, she was talking to newly installed CIA Director John Brennan. Uh, they had a committee meeting, and uh, Mr. Brennan was to address some questions. So Representative Bachman took her turn and baffled Mr. Brennan with her questions. When the White House conducted their armed drone strikes in North Africa, particularly in eastern Libya, prior to the attack on our mission in Benghazi on 9-1-1 last year, 
Did the White House notify the State Department of the armed drone strikes before they were made? Director Brennan is completely baffled at this point, but attempts to answer the question anyway. Uh, armed drone strikes in Libya? Um, I'm unknowing of, of such, and I would defer to the White House to uh, address your question. Well, that's not good enough for Representative Bachman. She presses on. Were there any armed drone strikes in northern Africa that were made by the White House? And then I finally get it. She's doing a bit. That's what it is. So here, we'll go back and listen to this, and we'll add some uh, laughter strategically, and then it makes so much more sense. When the White House conducted their armed drone strikes in North Africa, particularly in eastern Libya, prior to the attack on our mission in Benghazi on 911 last year, did the White House notify the State Department of the armed drone strikes before they were made? <laughs> drone strikes in Libya? I'm <laughs> um, unknowing of, of such, and I would defer to the White House to uh, address your question. Were there any armed drone strikes in northern Africa that were made by the White House? <laughs> White House doesn't have uh, a drone capability, responsibility, whatever, so... I, I... Did they have any directives toward having armed drone strikes in North Africa? Again, I don't know what it is specifically referring to, but uh, again, I would defer to the White House on whatever happened at that time. And so were there any armed drone strikes that were made in North Africa prior to 911? In Libya? <laughs> I'm asking Director Brennan, were there any armed drone strikes that were made by the United States in North Africa prior to 911? <laughs> See, it makes much more sense now, doesn't it? Hey, we are speaking to Cincinnati-based comedian Tabari McCoy, and uh, it seems we have a scoop. We have scooped the other comedy podcasts out there with a exciting announcement from Tabari. Uh, Tabari, what's going on? Well, you know... Um... Seven years ago, I, doing a uh, thing that you like to call journalism, which I believe you're familiar with, yep. stepped on a stage at a local comedy club trying to tell jokes, because I've always had a long love of comedy. And even though that night, I believe most of my jokes were atrocious to the point that if I heard them now, I'd probably cringe physically, people laughed, and it encouraged me to keep doing it. And I've been doing it, and you fast forward to the present, and now I have a deal in place with the fine folks over at RooftopComedy.com to record my debut stand-up comedy album this fall at the club where it all started, Go Bananas Comedy Club in Montgomery, Ohio. Cool. And then uh, you need some help from folks, though, uh, as I can see on your Facebook post. Yeah, if people are willing to go to my Kickstarter account, and they will donate anywhere between 5 and 20 bucks. Um, I've got a deal with the label where if they donate $5, we're going to send them a digital copy of the album. If they donate 20 I'm going to take the time myself to sign the album, send it off to them, along with some other goodies. And when I say the album, I mean an actual physical copy of the CD. We already have a title for the CD and a cover art concept. I don't want to spill the beans on that, but let's just say it's going to pay an homage to a very famous hip-hop album with a humorous context, if you will. Cool. So how much do you need to raise? Is there like a, a certain limit? Yeah. 
The way Kickstarter works is if you raise all of your money, you get the money for your project, and of course they take out some fees, and if you raise more money than you need, you get to keep all that money too. But if you don't raise the minimum that you need, you don't get jack. And I need 1500 bucks. So I'm hoping I can find 300 people to donate $5 or 75 people to donate $20 or a mix somewhere in between. That will do it. And I originally I was talking with my label, and they said that, well, if you can get 300 people to donate that, we'll get them digital downloads or CDs. And I thought that, that they meant that was going to be it. Yeah. They said if anybody donates the 5 bucks. They get a digital download of the album, and if they donate the 20, we'll just make more CDs. Okay. And there's a limit on this, though, right? And there's a time limit. You have a certain limit. Yes, that's the thing about Kickstarter. You have to be on the ball. So I have 60 days. I had to get this done by, I believe, uh, June the 18th by noon to try and raise this money. So if there's anybody out there that wants to donate $5 or $20, I would be glad to take it. And then next year, when February comes around and someone starts to get on them, I'll say, hey, they already did their Black History Month support back in 2013 layoff. (laughs) All right, man. Okay, well, uh, we'll have links to your Kickstarter account uh, from our Podbean page. And uh, folks listening to this any other way than through Podbean, like on iTunes, uh, just go to Kickstarter and look up Tabari. It's T-A-B-A-R-I, standard spelling, McCoy. And yes, yeah. You know, it's funny. Tabari, I thought, was the only thing that was ever going to trip people up, and I just had somebody misspell my last name recently. Who would have thought that would have happened? There you go. Well, I'm Irish, so I, I think I can handle it. All right. No problem. Okay, brother. Well, uh, good luck to you, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we can get some, uh, some folks uh, across the country and around the world uh, to throw in uh, for the new album. That'd be greatly appreciated, everybody out there listening. If I haven't met you before, love to meet you sometime. If I have met you, thanks for the support. And if you don't want to support me, I hope that you catch cholera. (laughs) All right, man. Thanks a lot. No problem. All right, brother. Bye. Book of Love's debut album came out in the spring of 1986 following a string of club hits. They soon became one of the most popular synth-pop bands in America, opening for the likes of Depeche Mode and releasing three subsequent albums. They are going to be playing a one-off gig in Houston this week at the Numbers Nightclub. And here is Ted Adaviano to talk about a possible full-time reunion of Book of Love. Okay, joining us on PS Tape Recorder, this is a huge treat. It's Ted Ottaviano from Book of Love. Ted, how's it going? I'm I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Um, we've met a couple of times in the past, although the last time I think we spoke was probably like 1990 or 91 when you guys were touring um, Candy Carol, I believe it was. Okay, that was a while back. That was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the first time we met, I was with uh, my buddy John. We were in a band together, and the, the one thing we were dying to know, we had to find out from you, is how you got your uh, drum sounds and your snare sounds, because this was before the Elisa's drum machine, and, um, you know, uh, snares back on old drum machines sounded like detuned toms. And then you gave us the okay. simple answer. I sampled them off other records, and we're like, oh, God, so simple. How did we not think of that? <laughs> <laughs> so you wound up being a huge yeah. help to us in that respect. So anyway, uh, on that on that album we did. Yeah, on that album we did. But basically, over the the four albums we we, we uh, created, we actually used some synthetic drum sounds. But on Candy Carol, we used a lot of samples. That's for sure. 
Yeah. Um, that first album, though, wow. I, I know reading when uh, Lullaby came out, which was your second album, you said you liked Lullaby better because it felt more like an album, whereas the first album, Book of Love, was more like a collection of songs. But man, what a collection of songs. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's like we, you know, we spent like, you know, two to three years writing all of those songs. So we had a chance to kind of weed out the ones that didn't really hold up. So it's a collection of, it's a collection of goodies. That's for sure. It's, it really it's held is. up over time. That's for sure. And I would say you make me feel so good is in my top 10 songs of all time. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, um, let's start from the now and work backwards. Perhaps Susan, I know is, is doing something in the food and, and cuisine industry. Correct. Yeah. She's a food stylist and she does really well for herself. Yeah. Oh, cool. And yeah. I know Lauren got married. Lauren got married. She's, Susan and Lauren both have kids. But Lauren has remained, you know, creative and, and has remained, like, sort of making her own artwork. And she's, okay. and she, uh, in addition to doing music with me on, on some other projects. Okay. And Jade? Jade is doing her artwork. You know, she's basically doing graphic design and, you know, she's creatively involved with us when we work on any new material. So, yeah. it, so it'll be all four of you in Houston. It'll be the three of us. Oh, three of you, so okay. Jade won't be there for the show. Okay. Like, But she's still a Book of Love band member. But this is something that, you know, from when we first disbanded in the 90s, this was the thing that she basically didn't really feel as interested in sort of pursuing with us. Okay. And on select shows, if she can be there, she will. But, That's cool. But not in the position. Okay. And then uh, the project we're working on with Lauren, I know I, I liked the Facebook page, uh, the Mermanons. I understand <laughs> you guys have some stuff. It was supposed to be coming out soon or sometime in the spring. Is that correct? Yeah, there's like actually a new single that's up on iTunes right now, and it's uh, three songs. And I mean, obviously, there's some overlap with Book of Love. We work with a singer called named Lori Lindsay, and kind of feels like it's kind of more a throwback to our interest in 60s songs and okay. kind of has like a real sort of 60s feel to it. You know, there's always an overlap like with kind of like the stuff we've done with Book of Love. So that, that's kind of concurrently sort of happening at the same time. I know you're interested, I guess, in the 50s and 60s music because apparently the name Book of Love came from the old, uh, the old song Book of Love by, and I have it on my iPod, and I can't remember who does it. The monotone, right, right. Yeah. It's like not that we had a love for that song at all. It's just kind of the imagery. Sure just worked for us and kind of it just fell out especially at that time when we started Book of Love like kind of like early to mid 80s it was really such a kind of like throwback to a lot of romanticism so we yeah. were kind of really into that kind of yeah we nicked the band name from that song that's for uh -huh. sure <laughs> it's, it's weird because growing up in the 70s I actually liked 60s music more and then I kind of skipped over the 70s musically and went right into the 80s so my my iTunes is very heavy in 80s and 60s music, very light in uh, 70s music. But um, <laughs> so uh, it's funny. I, I kind of have the same I have the same music interest too. But over the years, there's been a lot of 70s influx as well to my catalog. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I mean I like I like me some Queen. I like me some uh, and the Kinks worked through the 70s. A lot of the bands that worked through the 70s, like you know, the big names like the Rolling Stones and the Who and all them. And but uh, yeah, right, for, right. for the most part, yeah, I'm pretty selective on my 70s stuff. Um, when you guys decided to uh, to call it quits for a while there in the 90s, was it really because, and I, I had Dave Schultzel from the Ocean Blue on, your former bandmates, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him, was was grunge really the thing that I just kind of swept everybody out to see that wasn't making that kind of music? Because looking back, it kind of seems like that was kind of the thing that was 
really squashing the rest of the alternative music scene. Well, I wouldn't just say that grunge like killed it. I just think that what it it wasn't apparent that basically musically, like you know, the audiences had changed and they wanted to hear different things. We did, you know, we were kind of we were as much of a music participant as anyone else, and most of the electronic music became more dance oriented. Yeah, and uh, and techno and house industrial things went yeah they went went towards that direction. And then kind of more alternative music went back to a really sort of traditional sort of almost rock or post-punk sort of vein. And and it felt like kind of the, the synth pop songs that we were doing didn't feel like a place at that moment. Yeah. In, a, in a strange way, even for us, it was, you know, you could feel the tide change. We could have continued going on if we wanted to. We just basically just felt that we had sort of done thing at that point yeah and, um, so what do you think of like edm uh, music it seems to me that that's kind of been a branch of dance music nowadays it kind of is a little more song oriented than uh than house music yeah. was back in the late 90s Are you a fan of that yeah i am i mean there's, there's a lot of stuff that's out right now i mean honestly you can really just generalize like you can throw back to our genre and hear it in just like so much music right now i mean totally. it's, it's just amazing like just kind of the fact that everything is generated usually electronically, even if it sounds pretty traditional with traditional instruments. Yeah. And then the, just these really tight song structures and real sort of um, like adventurous sort of soundscapes of different sounds. I mean, in, in a way, I just even remember when we first started kind of having like too many palettes of sounds. Oh. felt superfluous like you know just kind of the fact that i listen to a record now and from like the intro to the outro it'll just like layer upon layer upon layer of different sorts of sounds and instruments were kind of in a strange way with something that like synth music was doing back in the 80s that a lot of people didn't like and then there was these fans that kind of loved the fact that there was this ability to make any and all sounds and why not you know and so I hear it just prominent in, in pretty much even the most mainstream records right now. And so what what's um would you say is the different and you said the Mermanons has kinda of some similarity to the Book of Love, of course, because it's you and Lauren working together, but what what kind of would be the difference, would you say? I always like thought like the Book of Love was an eighties band and the Mermanons was a nineties band, even <laughs> though even though we started only just a few years ago, like kind of in a strange way in the 90s, all of a sudden there was kind of a mixture of post-punk and electronic music, like almost bands like Garbage and Elastica, and and then basically like right on the cusp of the millennium when the strokes happened. I always felt that in a, in a weird way, the Myrmidons like like felt like a, tr- a branch off of those trees to me. Okay. And Pugliel is just straight ahead, like just you know, just honors, like, just the best of all the, like, electronics and bands. I mean, we were we were just maybe a hair after the original synth band, but we were, we were definitely, you know, part of that genre. Well, definitely, yeah. I mean, well, the touring with Depeche Mode and so forth kind of, I think, cemented yeah. you into that, yeah, as well. You knew, like, the bands that we just love. I mean, you know, Depeche Mode, of course, but even, like, early Human League and so much great stuff. Gary Newman, you know, I mean, those records still stand up. Oh, yeah. I think Newman League is one of the most underrated since 
Oh my God! Yeah. Well, of course, I spoke to uh, Andy McCluskey of OMD a couple of weeks ago, and oh my God, OMD is like, yes. like, like you know, I, 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 I basically bow down. Like, I mean, they they were one of the most influential bands to us when we first started out. Those early records. Oh yeah. Well, there's a guy that does a web page. Um, it's called Pat's World of OMD, and he's even a bigger OMD than me, if that's possible. But uh, <laughs> one of his other favorite bands. Book of Love. I, I remember going out to dance clubs myself, and they would play kind of this punk and new wave. And I remember the first time I heard Electricity, which was it wasn't even like I don't even think it was on their album yet. I think it was just basically a single. And I just thought I'd never heard anything so simple and sophisticated all at the same time. It just was like kind of it sounded so great to me. I still love that one on my all-time page. Now, uh, you guys met at, at art school, I guess, as the Book of Love lore goes. Is that correct? Yeah, we met, like, we, uh, Susan and Jade were going to Philadelphia College of Art, and Lauren and I were going to School of Visual Arts in, in New York. Basically, when Susan and Jade finished college, they moved up to New York, and then we were all kind of, like, just lived within a few blocks of each other, and we just started kind of doing it for real, seriously, as opposed to we kind of always had this little long-distance, little make-believe band that we were oh, doing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you were studying visual arts, but how did you, what was your musical background? I mean, we're all pretty much self-taught and just with a no traditional music background, like probably Jade had the most, but just amazing musical instincts. Just being able to really kind of, I was just painted with music. I mean, uh-huh. I always remember I heard Lindsey Buckingham of Fleetwood once call himself a colorist as opposed to musician, and I always thought that that was pretty much said it. Like we always kind of knew we need a little blue here, we need a little dark yeah. blue there. We just knew how to make that make sound, do those sorts of things, and. So it felt it always felt like a fit, and I mean, you know, art school bands are a tradition in pop music. So we were, we felt right at home, like sort of just having that amount of technical prowess, and then basically we just started switching on instruments that kind of like compensated in areas where we didn't have that, where we needed compensation. <laughs> yeah, because well, you have such a knack for writing hooks and melodies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's just basically, you know the way my brain works. Uh, we've been rehearsing again, and especially on a track like You Make Me Feel So Good, it's almost layer and layer of hooks. It was oh, just, yeah. At a certain point, it was like I had to learn to sort of simplify the hooks because it was just the thing that was just so much fun about, like all those possibilities that those instruments like allowed you. And so, yeah. Yeah, well, structurally, it is, as you mentioned now, it's, it's, it's very human league, the way Dare is structured, where it's more... Melodies on top of melodies, as opposed to anything really playing a chord. Maybe a few things, mm-hmm. Michael, but really, it, it, the the whole thing is suggested by the vertical structure of all the melodies, and it's just just, just brilliant. So, um, yeah. maybe I'll play that after the interview here on the on the okay. show. Um, so if if all goes well here in Houston, is any chance there will, will be future Book of Love material, or is it just gonna take it and see, you know, maybe play another gig if people are interested? Or I mean, we did something. They re-released our full catalog in 2009, and we did one little show in New York. Our lives really weren't at the place at that point where it just, you know, we were interested in it. And um, but this time around, it's 
like I, I feel like we're all in a place where we would like to work on some new music. Oh, cool. I know we've been talking about like all these different groups, but I mean, David Bowie has been like a major influence on us our whole career. And even just kind of seeing him sort of make his new album and just been so inspiring. It's just been kind of, in a weird way, we remain music fans as much as, you know, musicians ourselves. And, you know, we, we have been talking about it. And it's we just take one step at a time. So the first thing is to go down to Texas, see how the show feels. And, you know, there's also been talks here and there maybe about even doing another date but nothing concrete yet you okay. know we're just gonna like as old as it is okay we'll, we'll keep folks posted then uh all right well hopefully right. we'll be able to see you somewhere closer to cincinnati where i am like columbus or cleveland or somewhere that i can drive to and um, oh yeah absolutely cool and uh, boy great talking to you again after all these years so excited that uh book of love is still in action Yes, yes. Thank you so much for your interest, and thanks for, you know, getting the word out. No problem. We'll have links to all Book of Love stuff and the Myrmidons and everything we can get our hands on on the Podbean page, so everyone look for that. And uh, thanks again, Ted, for taking the time. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks again to Ted Adoviano for being on the show. As I mentioned in the interview, this is one of the best pop songs ever written from Book of Love's 1986 debut album, Book of Love. It's You Make Me Feel So Good on PF's tape recorder.
You Make Me Feel So Good, Book of Love on PF's tape recorder. You can catch them in Houston at the Numbers Nightclub on Saturday, April 27th. Go to numbersnightclub.com for more information. Book of Love's website is bookoflovemusic.com. Don't forget to go to Tabari McCoy's Kickstarter page. We have all the information on that on the Podbean page. If you're listening to this any other way than through Podbean, just go to pfradio.podbean.com or go to Tabari McCoy's Facebook page to find the link to his Kickstarter account and you can donate to that and help him get his album made this fall. We are running late, so the only other thing I have to add is so long, and thanks for listening.